and welcome back to another impact tonight on the Impact Education Leadership. This is episode 146. I'm your host, ID3 Fines, and Jordan Thursday night, Sunday night, Larry Davis, Jamila, Bashir, and Buddy Thornton Possible, Shane Davis Pro. Buddy Thornton, please say hello to the people. Good evening, everybody, and good evening, my esteemed panel mates, because this is going to be exciting. Wonderful. And Jamila, Bashir, please say hello to the people. Hello, everyone, and hello to my fellow panelists. And the one and only Dr. Larry Davis. Please say hello again to the people, sir. Hello. Welcome. I'm looking forward to it again. Every time I meet with this, with you and the panel, I am the one who walks away that much more richer. So I'm looking for those uh, deposits today. I say amen to that. Well, listen, tonight's topic is one that needs to be shared. A lot of people have said that COVID-19 left so many gaps. But I believe tonight we're going to expose the gaps that were already there. We just covered them up. Individual education program and community involvement is the topic for tonight. What is IEP? I'll tell you. It is an individual education program. That's right. What's that? It's when educational leaders are tasked to describe how students who qualify for special education services can have a voice in a positive way for school culture and school vision. A student's IEP will specify that student's strengths and weaknesses or challenges the student has in each country area and determine techniques to accommodate and to modify those necessary requirements to help their student learn without giving them different material than the general educational population. There are some ways that organizations are beginning to refocus, refocus on developing youth advocacy, which skills are crucial, information necessary, necessary to address these initiatives for building our young people our young scholars and their mentors. Their mentors also need to be built and be equipped with resources intrinsically and extrinsically, internally and internally to service this population within the school. Special education programs in the United States have been mandated since 1975 when the U.S. Constitution passed the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, EHA for short, in response to discriminatory treatment by public educational agencies against students with disabilities. Tonight, we're gonna have a sensitive, sensitive, sensitive conversation 
the love that's on the panel tonight is going to conquer this topic. Why? Because love conquers all. You know, first I want to go to Dr. Larry Davis. Dr. Larry Davis, when you heard the topic for tonight, you know, and, you know, and I'm going to say this, a lot of people have been spiritually hacked. But anyway, when you heard the topic for tonight, <laughs> what was the first thing that came to your mind? Talk about it. You know, I just, I think all children have to be represented. And I just, I feel that way. And I've always felt the way I heart for what we do for children in this system of education. But I just wish there would come a day that we could take the special ed out of education and just make education special for every child. So we wouldn't have to have an IEP, we would have an IAP, an individual academic plan for every child to be successful. And that plan met their needs, served their their needs, served their uh, deficiencies, their disabilities, and their educational qualifications or disqualifications. That's what I thought when I said that. When can we make education special for everybody and then every child have an IAP? Because, you know, this uh, RTI is supposed to make us have that anyway. I A P Lord, I'm mercy. Who else? What? Let me ask Buddy Thornton. What was the first thing that came to your mind in your heart when I gave you the topic for tonight? Well, I'm in a household that has had a quote-unquote developmentally challenged child in each generation, and I thought, you know, after her basically. 40 years of dealing with this issue directly with at least two to three different groups of teachers and administrators over the four decades, uh, maybe there are some answers. And I didn't look for the traditional and the canned answers. I looked outside the box, and that's what we'll go to today. You, you know, let, let me ask you another question before I go to the next guest and ask them the same question. When, when I gave you this topic, what were your pain points? What were your pain points when you heard this topic? My biggest pain point goes back to my developmentally disabled son, who is now 42 years old. When he would be sent home from school because he would not stay in his seat and he would get up and he would literally walk out the door and just go out into the playground and just stare at something. Or he would get up and he would climb up on the desk and he would walk around the room on everybody's desk and look them in the face and try to read their minds because his was so closed. And the teachers, the administrators, the counselors were like totally at a loss. What do we do with your child? And, you know, the journey started there. And that to me, it was like a, a knife in the gut when I was told, when I was first told when he was in kindergarten, that that was a problem he was going to have. Mm. And by sure, you too are a youth advocate. And so with that being said, what was the first thought that came into your mind when you heard the topic for the night? Well, when I heard the topic, I was like, oh, finally, someone is going to talk about this issue. Um, I've worked in special education for a little over 16 years and I have a younger sister who um, who has an intellectual disability. So this is really close to me. And she's the main reason why I went into special education. And it's like, okay, we're finally going to discuss how 
we can improve this education system because it is an unfair system and is very unfair to our children of color. Wow. Well, let me, let me say this. That was so deep because uh, there's a connection. There's a connection. And the connection has compassion. I, I heard the connection with Larry Davis. He, he's a school administrator. And so he's been connected to all those students. So he spoke from that standpoint. But Thornton spoke from a family standpoint of having a son you know, I, I know I know his son. His son has been over my house, spent the night. Uh, we went eating together, went out to eat, shopping, you name it. Um, and then uh, Jamila mentioned her her younger sister. We have all the ingredients for this topic tonight, and so I want to open the panel really quick and ask this question. an overhaul in our IEP system post-COVID-19. Now, the, the key word here is post-COVID-19, <laughs> right? That's the key word. The panel is open. I, Who wants to take that first? I'll let Jamila go. Yeah. Let you know. <laughs> Uh, okay, yeah, I, I know you said post, but we needed to overhaul before COVID. Um, Thank you. But ab <laughs> absolutely, we definitely need an overhaul of our special education system because it's not it's not equal. There is no equality. There is no equity either. Um, it's crazy how I can be. I'm from Philly, so I can be in Philadelphia and special ed is done this way, but I can go 40 minutes away to another county and special ed is done a whole completely different way. They have way more resources, way more teachers, and can um, properly support students. Whereas if I go back 40 minutes to Philly, it's not that. It shouldn't be that way. So absolutely, there needs to be an overhaul of such education because there is no equity and there is no equality either. You know, I, I'm, I'm just going to piggyback off what, what uh, she just said. How can it be a federal program, a federal mandate, and then when you go from state to state, even city to city, there's just discrepancies. You can't have a federal mandate and you have discrepancies. It should be the same universally. But here's the thing. We don't just need an overhaul. We, and it's not the IEP that needs to overhaul. We need to have a dedicated system of preparing teachers to be special needs teachers. We need to do better in, in preparing teachers for what they have, to, what's going to be in store, what's going to be asked of them, what's going to be required of them. Because here's the thing. We send our babies to school, and we go off to work, and we hope, we really do, we hope, we have faith that our teachers are well-equipped enough to take care of whatever needs our child has, be it uh, developmental, be it academic, learning, it doesn't matter. We, we, we have this faith that our system is, is predicated on taking care of our child. We're not even thinking about the other 2,000 children in the building. We're only thinking about ours. And if our child has a disability, we have faith that that child is going to be taken care of, to the, not just to the best of the teacher's ability, but to the best ability possible. So we need to do more than just 
update the IEP, we need to revamp the system and revamp how we train teachers to come into that system and, and better prepare them. You, you know, when you said that, that part, when you said that, the first thing I thought about was influences. And those influences are those connections. And, and, and that connection has a representation. And that representation has a voice. And so whose voice are we listening to? I know we're hearing school leaders' voices, but are we hearing the voices of family members? Are we hearing the voices of friends? Are we even hearing the voices of mentors the, or program directors? Whose, whose voices are we taking into account? Come on, talk about it. Let's, let's, let's just for a moment go on a journey. A child goes into the third grade with an IEP and the teacher is progressive and aggressive at teaching and working with that child, makes that child feel wanted in the classroom, and moves that child forward just yards and yards ahead of where they have been. Fast forward to the very next school year, the same child with an updated IEP, and the teacher is closed-minded, doesn't like, does not like mainstreaming, ignores the child, does not help the child, does not work with the child, and so their IEP slides back downhill. The next year they go into another classroom and a teacher is very progressive and treats them the way they were treated two years earlier. This is a child with developmental needs. This is a child who is not normal. This is a child who would benefit from consistent treatment. Mm -hmm. And exactly what Dr. Larry said, if we're not going to train 100% of the teachers to give equal consideration then how is a child supposed to be expected to become any kind of a functional adult out of that system? It's not not going to happen. It has to be overhauled. It has to be scrapped. It has to be dynamited into non-existence. And we need to start again with the precept of equal positive regard across the board and teachers either buy in or get out of the field. Yeah, need them to blow up. Locus of control. Buddy Thorne, when you were speaking, and I love, I love this mix. I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> I don't see it to the future, but I knew this was going to happen because of the right, we got the right panelists for this conversation. But when, when I hear you talk, I hear experience, okay? And when I hear Larry Davis talk, I, I hear experience. When I hear, hear uh, Jamila Bashir talk, I, I hear that experience. And, and you all are located in different uh, regions within the United States, but you all have experience and you have perspective, right? right? So thinking about that experience, because teachers, their job, let's face it, is to educate those children in the different content areas. And, you know, of course, you, you, there are different disciplines um, that they are teaching children as well. But then you have those specialized teachers that teach or deal with or connect with those special needs children. And this experience, experience comes from events. And it comes from how, I would say good experience comes from how you handle events especially those major events, especially loss, how you bounce back, how you become resilient, 
how you become intrinsically motivated, right? And then experience when it's rich and when it's seasoned, then it infuses itself into the community. It infuses itself into the nation. And it has the ability to influence success over time. With that being said, Blade let me ask you a quick question. What are the benefits? What are the benefits of community involvement in education? The best benefit is in a, a community or a area of, say, a system or a school campus that has energized parents who are willing to work with the teachers, something that right now in this uh, era we are not seeing across the board, far from it. When you start talking about the positive affect of community involvement, you're lacing that with expectations that are unrealistic in this day and time. What we have to do is we have to educate the parents and educate the community leaders to understand that they are all common role models for the kids who have an unbelievable amount of access to the social world around them, something that was non-existent 20 years ago and certainly non-existent 40 years ago. So if you can't realize that you're in a fishbowl and the kids are watching you every second and they're very aware of what you're doing right and they're very aware of what you're doing wrong, then that creates a problem. So the benefit comes from community involvement when the community is in lockstep with understanding that they are 100% role models who need to understand how they affect the students in the classroom. And that affect on those students creates either a empowerment of the teachers or pushes the teachers into a rabbit hole. Blaisler, please let us know a little bit about, you know, what you got going on currently. Next month, I have two books that are being released uh, globally. There are companion books. They're called The uh, Optimal Journey to Oneself. Uh, one is for students, the teens, and young adults. And the other is for the teachers, the parents, and the caregivers of those children. And it's uh, aligned around my four pillars concept. And it's supposed to empower parents to understand that their children are actually exactly the same as they were when they were teens and to go back on that memory trip to understand all the problems and issues they had and then be more compassionate with their children and empower the communication between the generations. Powerful, powerful. Thank you for that, sir. And, and finally, we get a chance to go to Jabila Bashir. Welcome to the podcast. Please let the listeners know a little bit about what you got going on currently. Sure, sure, sure. Hi, again, my name is Jamila Bashir, a.k.a. I'm the IEP coach. Um, I can talk about the IEP all day. Um, I am a special education supervisor, former SPED teacher, and I'm an educational consultant. My company is the IEP Coach LLC, and we focus on supporting school districts um, with supporting their special education teachers, giving them proper training in PD because special education teachers don't really get PD pertaining to their area of expertise. They tend to get pushed in with everyone else's PD. Um, so 
knowing that I want to support teach SPED teachers with that so that way they can better support our students in the classroom. And this will help them in turn stay in the field because you have so many special education teachers leaving the field due to burnout. Um, I self-published a book because of her. It is a true story of what it was like growing up with a sibling with a disability. So I talk about me and my little sister and I talk about the impact she's had on my life. Um, and I also have an ebook called Master the IEP, Volume 1, A Beginner's Guide to the IEP. Um, and volume 2 will be coming out soon. Um, yes, and that's just a little bit about me. Wow. You know, when I looked you up, I said, here's a person that is like Nike. They just do it, right? Communicating concisely and crystal clear and letting people know as you introduce, you know, what type of activities you are bringing to their school environment, right? And so you got to have the right uh, lesson plans, the right exercises, the right uh, goals that you plan to attain. And, and you do all of this in a way, not only that is, I would say, professional with your preparation uh, and the way you execute and exercise, but you have the ability to create an open and safe environment. Mm -hmm. With that being said, let me ask you a question, Ms. Jamila Besher. What programs <laughs> would you recommend to enhance community relationships to increase um, positive health behavior? I, I, I'm not finished yet. <laughs> I and, know. That's why I found that. And, like, and, so, <laughs> <laughs> and to decrease those risk-taking behaviors in the IEP community. Please talk about it. Okay. <laughs> there's a there's a there's a lot, but I'm just gonna try to you know not go too 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 far on, but. Definitely, um, there needs to be that relationship. There needs, there needs to definitely be that relationship between the parents, school, and the community. Um, that relationship definitely has to be cultivated and it has to be strengthened because it truly takes the village to support all students, not just students that have an IEP, but all students. So strengthening that, um, relationship, um, having like information sessions regarding, um, students regarding their academics and, you know, anything that can help them academically, um, that would be greatly appreciated by parents. Um, parents always, they want, they want resources that they can use at home to help their children. Um, so that's a lot, that is a lot of what they're asking for from schools, um, to help, help them help their children at home. Um, so definitely if schools are able to provide that um, or provide them with resources in their neighboring community that can help parents with their children, that is um, greatly appreciated by the parents as well. Also, when it comes to students that have special needs, having information sessions to teach parents how to go about getting their child evaluated if that is something that they want to do. What are the steps? And what can they expect if that happens? Um, preparing parents for that and helping them understand what that is like, you know, parents will then understand that process, how long it's going to be, 
and what they're going to experience ultimately. Um, another thing, like, for instance, um, preparing parents and telling them about child fine. That's a certain time of the year when we have to make sure all the IEPs that are due before the year out, make sure they're due. And then anyone in the community, in the neighboring community, it could be a kid who's being homeschooled, even though they don't go to the to their neighborhood school, they could get an evaluation if needed, if that's something that the parents want. Um, educating the community about that when that time comes, educating them about that so they know, oh, this is what child sign is. Oh, I can, I can um, get an evaluation for my child if that's something that I need. Oh, I know my school can support me with that. Another thing that we need to do as a community when it comes to our, our children that have special needs is also having high expectations for them and, 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 and allowing them to rise to the occasion. A lot of times, I'm not going to say a lot of times, sometimes we get parents and teachers when they have a child who has special needs in their classroom or they have a child that has special needs, they lower their expectations and they, and they say, and, it, and they have the assumption, well, you know what, they can't do this. So I'm just going to let this slide. I'm just going to, oh, I'm just going to allow them to do whatever, but that does not set the child up for success at all because when they get out in the world, no one will care that they have a disability or they have a limitation. And we need to hold our, ki- hold our children accountable for their behaviors and for what they're doing and explain to them and explain to them how to manage the emotions that they're feeling so that way they can be um, the best, so that they can be the best that they can be when they leave school, when they leave their home, when they're not with their family, when they're not with their uh, parents. Um, and just providing that support for parents is a big, big, big help. And parents not being in denial if their child is having needs because the longer you're in denial, the more time is wasted that we could get the child help that they, that can help them in their education. What you said was so vital the perspective that you expose was so crucial. I want to open the panel because you, 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 you're making me change directions. And I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm okay with that. And I want to open the panel with this question. Will someone give us a success story of a special needs individual that people thought, let's throw this child away. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing we can do with him or her. And they gave up. But this child rose through the ashes and became a success story that you talk about even to this day. The panel's open. Who wants to who wants to share tonight? I wanna talk about a client of mine who had a child. They lived in an apartment for seventeen years, a two bedroom apartment with a child who could not speak, 
and who is really, really severely uh, limited in social skills. And when attempting to go to school, the parents came to me and they said, how can we make sure that our child gets the benefit of everything they can have? And I told them, I said, it's going to take self-sacrifice on your part and holding everyone in the education system accountable for your child, remembering that your child is only one of thousands. So you have to give them the benefit of the doubt, but never waver in stating what your child needs. Let's fast forward to today, and their child is now 26 years old. He's had the same job since he was 17, working for the same company. He's had one promotion. He speaks minimally, but he does speak at about a fourth or fifth grade level. And because the expectations were consistent across all that time, he has found a niche in society. And because people understand him, because his parents were also 100% involved through the entire journey, they, the community came around this child and they made him a community child. It does take a village. It takes a village. It takes a village to be responsible and understand their responsibility. And he has every expectation to be a success as long as people care about him. it's that That's the key word. They love him and they care about him. Now, do they ever expect him to have a romantic relationship, ever give them grandchildren? No, they don't. But because they had someone who told them up front to be realistic about their expectations, but to never give up supporting their child, they have had about as high a success as they could possibly dream of given the starting point. A story of students on their way, like they're still in school now, but they have made just so many gains. Um, uh, this one student, um, I want to say she started off in the lower school when she got to my school, which is the middle school. Um, I noticed she had a severe case of learned helplessness that she has had since she was in elementary school. So, this is a girl, obviously, she's had experience where she may not have done well and no one, I'll say, just built her up or lifted her up or poured into her for her to want to do well. Um, and so when she got to me, I don't deal with uh, learned helplessness too well. So I was <laughs> really on this girl and I'm just like pouring into this girl and um but she didn't believe it. And it wasn't until I want to say she's in, she just finished seventh grade, seventh grade. We just had a heart to heart, all her teachers. We was like, what, like, what do you want? Like, what do you want to do in life? Like, what do you want? We literally was like, we, we was at, at like our wits and like, what is it? And she starts telling us about her dreams, what she wanted to do. She wanted to be a doctor. She wanted to do all I'm like, how are you going to get there? Well, I have to do, I'm like, you need to, she was telling us what she needed to do. I said, well, you have to start now. You can't just wait until, oh, I finished school. This is when I'm going to start doing what I need. I was like, you have to start now. I want to say after that, heart to heart, it was like she did a 360. 360, like, no longer was she like, oh, woes me. She was just like, actually putting forth effort to do her best 
every single day, every day. And when I would see her, I would tell her like, oh, I'm so proud of you. You're doing so good. Keep it up. And that's what she needed. She needed like confirmation. She needed words of affirmation. She need the, she needed that type of, I'll say, love from her teachers for her to turn herself around. And I'm happy to say she's going to the eighth grade now with a better attitude and a better mindset that she can achieve and that she can do well. See, we love that. And going to the eighth grade, for me, that is so scary. I'm just going to be honest because during that time period, during that stage of development, that's where that risky behavior almost peaks. It's like almost the apex of that risky behavior. That's when it really starts. You know, they're going through puberty. They are having an identity crisis where they're trying to identify themselves and they're in this role of confusion. And this is the time, this is the this time in kindergarten, pre-K, and this time to me and graduation, of course, those are the most crucial times for parental involvement. Let me, I got a, I got an expert on the panel that's going to talk about this. Uh, Dr. Larry Davis, I, I got to get you to talk about this question before I do. What you got going on, Karen, sir? I know you got, you all over <laughs> the countryside. Like, talk about it. Just like, just like uh, Buddy and, the, and our blessed queen, got a couple of books out there. Um, looking to, you know, doing the consulting with school districts. I've written a, I've written a, uh, a new platform that I shared with Buddy and Buddy and I looked at it and talked about it and he helped me, you know, fill in some of those gaps. So, uh, that's it. And just trying to find a way to make our school system better. Because right now you're about to give us some wisdom. But I was told this years ago, I was told that wisdom is not taught, but it is Oh. So with that being wow. said, let me ask you a question. How can we get parents to be meaningful in their involvement in our schools? How can we get parental involvement to become like it used to be in the days of old or, or if not better? What's your thoughts? We 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 want to listen to you. We want to we want to walk with you on this one, and we promise we will listen. <laughs> you don't listen to me. That's a dangerous thing to say. Uh, but let me start by saying this: uh, the Bible tells us, and the Bible tells us not to not to think about the days of old because the days of new are going to be even better. So let's not get hung up on the days of old. I want to get yes, a couple things. You said a success story at one point in time, and I need to check the figures again, but at least one-third of every school superintendent in the nation had a form of autism. Now, that's success, right? Think about that. These are students that had disabilities that went on to lead school districts. That's a success. Now, And, and I want to say something about uh, Buddy and Jamila said something. Our education system, the building itself, is so segregated because we have – AP teachers, we have dual credit teachers, we have gen ed teachers, and we have special ed teachers. Until every teacher in that building 
understands everything that everybody does and has to do it, that, that's the only time we'll get teachers from saying, oh, that's not my student, that's a spare student. No, every student in that building is ours, and the only way we can get them to claim it is if every teacher is trained, taught, and skilled at everything that our students need. And we can get away with saying spare teacher, gen ed teacher, AP teacher, dual credit teacher, and they can just be teachers. Let me got that soapbox. But, you know, so here's the thing, our parents. Let's start with just reaching out. Why don't we just reach out to them? You know why we don't? Because we think parents are an intrusion to our building and not an inclusion to our building. And then when they come in our building, why are we giving them the most remedial jobs? Go file papers. No, I don't want my parent hid. I want my parent visible because, let me tell you something. I don't know how Tommy acts when dad's not around, but I know how he acts when he sees dad on the campus. So I need dad to be visible on that campus. And let me tell you, moms and sons and dads and daughters, if you get those dads on that campus, we're going to have some role model effects. It's going to be so overwhelming and positively impacting our campuses. Next one is, why don't we listen to parents? Parents are telling you all the time what they want from the school. Well, if this is what we want from the school, Hey, parents, how can you come on our campus and help us do that? Help us get those things, which means we've got to give them access. Our parents need access. We need, to, we need to stop having – I've been on so many campuses, and I understand safety reasons, so let me not dis- dismiss safety, but I've been on so many campuses, even when they know the parents, they've done the volunteer forms and did all the, they have a restricted area for parents. This is as far as you can go. Wow. If that's as far as you can go, then we've already limited the success of our parents. And then – why don't we have a plan, a plan for parents when they come on campus, not just go, can you use Ms. Johnson today? Uh, Ms. Johnson is here. I have no plan. We need to have an organized plan for our parents when they come on campus. And then finally, just like we engage teachers, we need to engage our parents into our educational plans, into our campus improvement plans, into our children's studies. We have to engage our parents. So first of all, let's just reach out to them. Let's listen to them. Let's give them access. Let's have a plan for them, and let's engage them. I think, and this is just my belief, if we do that and make it an all-inclusive system for our parents, what we teach them won't be a mystery, and what our kids are learning won't be a mystery either. There you go. Lord, have mercy. Like I said, when we first started, we out of time. But before we go, what are the takeaways for the night? Thank you so much, Dr. Larry Davis. Schools and, um, excuse me, schools need to definitely reach out to parents um, to cultivate that relationship so that way parents can start to trust, can go back to trusting the schools and uh to, to, to work with their, their child and also parents, you know, telling schools what they need. What do you need assistance with? How can you help us with those things? Also, parents being not being in denial of what their children need and getting them the support that they need as well um, is another takeaway. And just when it comes to teachers, all of the students are ours. The IEP students are not just mine. They're all of our students. And like what I think it was Larry that was saying this, you have to have that understanding that these are our students. So on top of training our teachers, we also need to do mindset work as well because you have some teachers that come in, well, I'm just a math teacher and I'm just focusing on math or I'm just science or I'm just that. 
these are my kids over here and your kids are over there. We definitely have to have mind shift work done on our teachers as well so they can understand these are all our children. We are here to educate them. We are here to support them. We are here to pour into them and to love on them. And if you don't have that understanding, you should not be working in a school at all. Heard that. Heard it first. Who's next? Uh, you and I and, and many panel mates over the last three years have talked about different versions of this conversation. And to be practically uh, straightforward with everybody who hears this, this later on, this was the motivation for me writing books three and four. Books three and four were a clarion call to teachers and caregivers and parents to increase their involvement, but to also understand that their children need to be engaged with at a level that allows the children to co-create their world, not just have uh, someone pushing their back and shoving them through it. And I think that over the last two or three years, I've gleaned a lot of information from people on this, this panel every time I'm on that has given me insight into what happens in different school systems across the country. And I have never seen anything different. There has never been anything different. The successful schools have engaged parents and teachers who teach outside the topic. They're not afraid to go outside the topic when a child needs them to go outside the topic. And they understand that that's developing a child. It's not teaching a child. It's taking the child by the hand and walking the journey with them. And that's what teaching used to be thousands of years ago. So maybe not the good old days that we think of, but certainly that had value then. I'm sure it has value today. Let me say something real quick, because I got a caveat to that. I never do this. I never, ever do this. But I got to say something. Uh, buddy, you are... 100% correct. And the reason why I say that is because co-creation was the first commandment. God said, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, Dr. Larry Davis, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's good. So I want to see a couple of takeaways. First one is this. The, young, the, the student who's going to A grade next year, the sad thing is she may not have a Jamila Bashir. That's the, that's, that's the sad thing. The other takeaway is this. We often say that our schools are a microcosm of our communities. That, it shouldn't be that way. Our schools should be a microcosm of what our communities should be. It should be the ideal example for every student to be in as far as understanding equity, diversity, and inclusion, getting away from racism and bullying, understanding what having a good heart and being a good, the, what is it, treat others as you want to be treated. I say treat others better than you want to be treated. That should be the culture of our campus. And when you think about when we start to segregate students, you know, here in Texas, we have a very racist thing. We call students who are not white subgroups. And that's to me just, <laughs> that tells you that I don't have to teach this student as well as I need to teach this other student. So our campuses need to be a microcosm for our children of what society and our communities should be and could be, not what they are. 
Now, I want to add just one little tiny thing, because what Larry said just strikes me right in the heart. When I teach my own kids, my own grandkids, and my great-grandkids the golden rule, I teach it this way, and it's something that was left off by most people. And he just hit it right on the head. Do unto others as they do unto you, or do as you want to be treated regardless of how they treat you. It doesn't matter what they do. It only matters what you do. That's how I teach my kids. The conversation tonight was hot. This was another impactful night of the Impact Education Leadership. Facebook.